the Fed has a dual mandate as part of its price stability. So it has responsibility, as Congress has drafted the Federal Reserve Act, both for price stability and maximum employment. And that's interesting because most other central banks don't have this two-legged mandate where they have to look out for both price stability and unemployment. Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of Wharton faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney, and in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. During the Fed's most recent meeting, a decision was made to hold rates steady. This marked a pause from their aggressive rate hiking campaign that began in March 2022, aimed at tackling the challenge of rising inflation. The Fed also indicated there might be at least one more rate increase on the horizon for this year. How will this decision, along with the broader mandate of the Fed, influence the U.S. economy and beyond? Well, one of the things to look at as we continue with our series, The Economy and You, is to get a better understanding of the Federal Reserve Bank, the role that it's playing now, but also what the central bank's role is supposed to be in general. Great to be joined by Christina Skinner, who's an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School. Hi, Christina. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You know, it's interesting because we talk about the Fed, it seems like, almost on a daily basis right now because of everything that's going on with the economy and and the role that the Fed is taking. But for those that really don't follow it as closely, what does the Fed do basically on a daily basis? I think this is such a great and important question. You know, in my own research, I really strive toward the goal of having everyday people understand what is the central bank and what it does especially at this particular moment in time when we've had a surge of inflation and people sort of generally know that the Fed has grown a larger footprint in the financial markets, people are starting to pay attention and really get interested from a sort of, you know, everyday lay perspective, what is the Fed doing? And before I really answer your question directly, I did want to just take a step back and make two things a little bit clearer for our listeners and viewers which is, I think, so essential to having this big picture context about what is the Fed doing? What does it mean for your everyday life? So the first point is that the Fed actually shouldn't be doing that much at all on an everyday basis. Really, the Fed's main job is to keep the economy and the financial system on an even keel, right? So the central bank shouldn't be trying to micromanage the economy, But the second point here is also notable that the Fed doesn't have a direct relationship with people really at all. So it doesn't lend directly to households ordinarily. It doesn't have bank accounts for them. The Fed is really working through the banking system and the financial markets. Now, with all that being said, as you rightly suggest, Fed policy does, of course, ultimately touch people's everyday lives in some pretty profound ways ways. And since we're just starting, I'm just going to give you the two sort of most significant or big picture ways that Fed policy touches our everyday lives. Now, the first thing is that Congress gave the Fed the job of pursuing price stability. So that means minding, watching out for inflation. Inflation is generally very bad for economies, very bad for societies because it's reducing the purchasing power of money. 
So it's undermining our wealth. It's making people's real wages lower so that it's harder for them to pay for goods and services, right? Because those wages aren't keeping up with an inflationary surge. It's hard for businesses to plan. So this really drags the economy down. And this is the Fed's main job. So this means that when we see a surge of inflation above the Fed's 2% target, it's going to do things like, in the first instance, raise interest rates to try and cool the economy down. And of course, when the central bank raises interest rates, that really profoundly impacts people's lives and their cost of credit for things like mortgages and cars and credit cards. The second thing to note in terms of how Fed policy affects people's everyday lives is that the Fed really takes its job seriously of stepping in during economic shocks to provide liquidity for the financial system. However, this really matters for everyday people because if the financial system freezes up, this severely impacts the rest of the economy, trickles down to households, businesses. So for example, lots of companies use a form of short-term debt called commercial paper to finance their operational needs like payroll. So if you've got money market funds that stop buying commercial paper because they're in distress, well, this means they're effectively ceasing to lend to those small, medium, large businesses. And the Fed doesn't want that to happen. It doesn't want banks to stop lending to people and businesses. So it really focuses on making sure that credit can remain the lifeblood of the economy. So in a nutshell, Fed doesn't do things directly for people, but it works through banks and the financial system to try and keep price levels stable, keep the financial system stable. And that's how it helps us on an everyday basis. But it sounds like, though, from what we've been going through the last few years, that to a degree, it's also not exactly an exact science as well, uh, because the term transitory was used when inflation was first coming up uh, a couple of years ago. And as we've seen, it really hasn't been transitory. In fact, it's been quite the challenge for the Fed to try and bring uh, inflation down over the last year and a half. Absolutely. It would be nice if it were a science, but like so much of public policy, combating inflation, thinking about inflation targeting, it involves a healthy dose of human judgment. And sometimes it requires just a lot of plain old common sense. Now, interestingly, transitory became almost a dirty word in the past few months because it was really the rationale that slowed the Fed down in responding to inflation. So the idea was that inflation would pass us by, would quickly dissipate because most of the inflationary surge that we were having was due to COVID-specific related things like supply chain bottlenecks, spikes in energy pricing. So on the basis of that rationale, the Fed, and I will say all the other leading central banks as well, the Fed was not here on a limb, waited what is now consensus view too long to start raising interest rates and or slowing down the pace at which they were buying bonds in their program of quantitative easing. So because the Fed was using a set of macroeconomic models and forecasting that said inflation would basically go away on its own, the Fed waited too long. But we now know that there are some demand side aspects to the inflation that we're seeing as well that largely have to do with a very rapid and significant increase in the money supply that came from fiscal stimulus in Congress. And the Fed tools can be used to do something about that demand side component of inflation. So that component of monetary policy is really, it, it is truly one of the key components that the Fed really has to focus on uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Absolutely. So, you know, I think when people tend to think about central banks, they do generally think about monetary policy and they think about inflation. Now, to dig in a little bit deeper, give you a little bit more uh, context and nuance here, the Fed has a dual mandate as part of its price stability. So it has responsibility as Congress has drafted the Federal Reserve Act, both for price stability and maximum employment. And that's interesting because most other central banks don't have this two-legged mandate where they have to look out for both price stability and unemployment. However, the sort of course of history has taught us that we really can't have maximum employment if we don't have price stability. So the Fed tends to sort of think first about how it can keep inflation steady at that 2% target and then sort of other ways that it can address the employment side of its mandate. And so within this sort of umbrella of monetary policy, the Fed has a couple different tools. I mentioned some of them already. It thinks about setting interest rates, right? Not just to deal with inflation, but in the ordinary course of things, the Fed, the Federal Open Market Committee more specifically will meet and decide what interest rates should be. Uh, important to note here that sort of going back to my earlier remarks, the Fed isn't directly setting market interest rates that people see when they're applying for a, mar- a mortgage or a car loan. But the Fed does set the interest that it pays on bank reserves, which then sort of influences the market rates and and tends to mirror that rate pretty closely. The Fed also does things like buys bond. It buys government securities, treasuries in the open market. And it usually does this now in the context of what I referred to earlier is quantitative easing. So it buys a bunch of bonds to try and stimulate the economy if it needs to, and lowering interest rates is no longer sufficient to juice the economy. And it also does some other sort of more complicated and nuanced things. So for example, it will lend to banks through the discount window in normal times. It will lend to banks and other kinds of financial institutions or companies in sort of an emergency context. And now through something called the overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility, that's a mouthful, right? It will also effectively lend to other kinds of institutions like money market funds in a way that mirrors lending to the discount window. So this is pretty much all the stuff that the Fed does under its monetary policy umbrella. And it's really all geared toward that monetary policy mandate, which is price stability, which the Fed has defined as inflation at an average of 2% and maximum employment. But p- part of it, at least what we have been talking about in recent months in regards to the Fed and the banking sector also, I guess, ties back into what we've seen uh, with some of the issues within the banking sector with Silicon Valley Bank uh, and the like uh, in recent months as well. Absolutely. So after the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act, this was a piece of post-crisis legislation. So in the, in the Dodd-Frank Act, Congress was essentially responding to the global financial crisis. The Fed gained much more supervisory and regulatory authority over systemically important financial institutions. So these are financial holding companies, thank Citigroup, and also other non-banks that the Financial Stability Oversight Council might designate as systemically important. So the point here is that the Fed is now also a regulator and a supervisor for really large financial holding companies. It's a supervisor. It's a bank regulator. So this is a completely separate function that it has from its monetary policy mandate. So the case of Silicon Valley Bank was really interesting and challenging for the Fed because there, in that incident, in that turmoil, you saw the Fed's two mandates, its monetary policy mandate for price stability, 
conflicting with its responsibility to be a supervisor of the banking system and sort of maintain and procure financial stability. Why is that? Well, the rise in inflation required that the Fed raise interest rates quite rapidly and quite quite steeply, which is what, in fact, it had been doing for the past 18 months. At the same time, when you raise interest rates, there's a famous saying, you know, when the Fed raises rates, someone's always going to, you know, when you slam on the brakes, someone's going to go through the windshield. We just don't know who. And that's basically sort of referring to the fact that something's going to break in the financial system, causing financial instability. So in a nutshell, you know, raising interest rates was part of the reason why this interest rate risk materialized for Silicon Valley Bank in a way that they had improperly managed, causing that bank's failure and some bumps in the rest of the banking system. So you saw this clash between the Fed wanting to maintain financial stability and it really needing to ensure price stability. So that's something new that the Fed has to wrestle with since this 2010 piece of legislation that had basically said to the Fed, you know, you're responsible for financial stability, for making sure that the banking sector is stable, but also we still need you to make sure we don't have inflation. What about the relationship between the Federal Reserve and Congress in general? That's a great question. So, you know, central banks are supposed to be independent, right? We learned this lesson a couple of decades ago. So independence is really a nuanced thing when you're talking about a central bank, because independence doesn't mean not accountable. So the Fed has a tricky sometimes relationship between its boss, which is Congress on the one hand, and the executive branch. So when we tend to refer to the central bank, we say, well, it's independent from the executive branch. It's not supposed to take instructions or pressure from the from the executive, from the president who has short-term political goals. And it's not really supposed to take in political instruction from Congress, ideally, but at the same time, Congress created the Federal Reserve and the Fed is an agent of Congress. And so the Fed has to be accountable to Congress. You know, Congress exercises oversight over the Fed. But just like we don't want the executive branch giving the Fed sort of political jobs to do, sort of, you know, finance the transition to a green economy, finance, you know, wall on the border. Those are sort of partisan issues that we prefer to keep the central bank out of as a technocratic economic policymaker. Uh, so its relationship with Congress is kind of a dance, right? It has to answer to Congress, and Congress could technically ask it to do any range of things. But historically, right, Congress has sort of said, okay, these are your responsibilities, price stability and employment. And, you know, we talked about the Dodd-Frank Act, financial stability. And so the Fed has to sort of stay in that lane that Congress has set for it while trying to navigate you know, inevitably the political issues that get put on its plate from time to time. Then let me also ask you then that you also have the relationship between Congress and the Federal Reserve Bank. But what about the the, uh, the relationship between the Federal Reserve Bank and the regional Federal Reserves as well, because there are a dozen of them located in different uh, spots around the country. We have one here in Philadelphia. How does that relationship kind of parse out uh, in, in terms of dealing with a lot of these issues? That's a really great question. And I think it's an aspect of our central bank that a lot of people overlook, and yet it's incredibly distinctive. So as you say, our central bank has this federalist structure, which really sort of mirrors the federalist structure of our country, where you've got the board in Washington, which was always intended to be a more uh, politically responsive organization, right? So the Fed board is a government agency. It sets policy. It's the, you know, Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed board, is one testifying before Congress. 
And then there are these 12 regional reserve banks that have this sort of interesting public-private structure. So the reserve banks, as you say, are, are located in, in regions all across the country. And they themselves have a board of directors, which is appointed by their private member banks. So the banks in the region of the reserve bank are members of that reserve bank. They appoint the board of directors. So in that sense, it has a, a private element. At the same time, it's carrying out these public policy goals, right? So it is supposed to be responsive to the board of governors. The board of governors, you know, the way to think about it, the board of governors is setting the policy, but those reserve banks are operationalizing policy. So you've got the New York Fed doing open market operations pursuant to instructions from the board of governors. And you have the regional reserve banks actually on the ground supervising banks in their district on a day-to-day basis, even though the board of governors is setting the overarching supervisory policy. But this sort of quirk of history that the reserve banks are public policy organizations but have this private sort of board of governors comes up from time to time and people wonder whether we should revisit that structure. I'm actually not one of those people, but it's worth noting that the debate is out there because we are one of the only central banks that has this unique public-private element. And for example, it became sort of live issue again in the context of Silicon Valley Bank when people start asking questions about, you know, what was the regional Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco doing and not pushing harder on SVB to deal with some of its unrealized losses, some of its unhedged interest rate risks. So an interesting quirk of our central bank, which, you know, I tend to think makes it stronger because you have this diverse set of viewpoints coming in from all over the country feeding into the board of governors. But it's it's certainly a, a unique characteristic. I guess the last point I should mention about our structure is that the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the organ of the Fed that is setting interest rate policy, draws on the expertise and the knowledge of the regional reserve bank presidents. And several of the reserve bank presidents will sit on the FOMC on a rotating basis. So the Fed also has to adjust to uh, the changes that go on within the structure of our economy, uh, our currencies, et cetera. Uh, one of which I guess is a unique element that's going on right now in and around cryptocurrency and how our economy, our culture is going to kind of bring that into the mix as we move longer term. It has already, but it's an element that the Fed probably has to consider as well. Absolutely. So like so many hot topics in our economy right now, the Fed hasn't escaped this one either. And it's sort of, you know, front and center in the in the cryptocurrency, I'll call it debate, because it really is a debate right now, both in terms of how to regulate and construct a legal framework around that various forms of cryptocurrencies and crypto assets, and also specifically what the central bank should do. And it's corner of the regulatory universe. And I will say, in the crypto world, there are two issues in particular that are live issues for the Fed. The first is what to do about stable coins. And I don't mean whether to classify them as a security or a commodity. That's a separate debate. The debate that's relevant for the central bank is whether it should provide access to accounts at those regional Federal Reserve banks for stable coin issuers. And the reason why this matters is because from a payments system perspective, no payment is final until it's settled in central bank reserves and central bank money. So settlement has to happen on the ledger of the central bank before any payment transaction is final. So if you aren't a bank or another financial institution that has an account 
at the Federal Reserve, then you can't sort of engage in payment settlement finality yourself. You have to go through another intermediary. So that's necessarily an inefficiency for a stablecoin issuer. So there's a live debate right now about whether the Fed should open up access to these stablecoin issuers, bring them into the fold alongside the banks, let them engage in, in, in payments work. And the question is, which the Fed is, I think, still trying to figure out, is doing so going to be net beneficial for the economy? Is it going to increase financial stability risk or not? Is it going to increase payments efficiency or not? And how to weigh those costs and benefits? Setting stablecoin to one side, the other sort of crypto issue that's live for the Fed right now is one that's relevant for all, almost all central banks around the world right now, which is whether the Fed should create something called a central bank digital currency, referred to as a CBDC. Now, a CBDC would be essentially similar to a stablecoin, except it would be a sovereign form of money. You can think of it in very simplified terms like digital cash, although for reasons that are probably too nuanced to get into right now, it's not completely similar to digital cash. But the idea is, you know, should the state, the government, create something that is a digital dollar? And that's not the Fed's decision to make. That's Congress's decision to make. But the Fed, of course, can't avoid thinking about the issue, having an opinion on the issue, you know, being aware of the fact that other central banks around the world are pretty actively advanced in developing a central bank digital currency. So that'll certainly be a issue and a debate to look out for in the coming years. You know, it is interesting because we are at a time, and I want to thank you for coming on and talking today. It seems like the Federal Reserve gets more attention now than ever before. Maybe it's a byproduct of the media world we're, we're living in right now, but it's seemingly every move that the Fed makes these days is scrutinized even more so than maybe it has been ever before. I think that's, you know, absolutely the case for a number of factors, as you suggest, right? It's the fact that we're having inflation for the first time since the 70s. It's the fact that the Fed is an incredibly effective and powerful institution. So people will naturally look to it to do things that they want governments to do, whether or not that is necessarily within the Fed's statutory mandate. And because our financial system is really large and complex, and the Fed has become a counterparty to so many institutions. So again, thank you for the opportunity to speak to the audience a little bit more about what the, the Fed does. And I hope we can do a part two sometime soon. Absolutely. Christina Skinner, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.